Well, if some benevolent stranger were to just walk up to you and, and hand you to the keys of a, of a brand new $400,000 Ferrari, it's just yours, and you were to accept this gift, and now it's yours, you own it, it's been given to you. And what if you decided, you know what, I think I want to use it as an airplane, and you just drive it off a cliff. You know what, I think I want to use it as a submarine. You just find a beach, drive that thing right under the ocean because you decide, you know, I've always wanted a bright red leather chaired submarine. I think what we'd all find is, okay, it will fail. It will not work. This beautiful thing that we've been given will fall apart in our hands because we're not using it for the purpose that it was designed and intended. The car isn't the problem. We're the problem. To truly enjoy the car for what it is, we have to use it properly. And the law of God that God is delivering through Moses at Sinai is like that, except infinitely better. It's this glorious, beautiful, infinitely better Ferrari. We have to know how to use it. 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul says to Timothy, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. In other words, there's a way to read the law and there's a way not to. There's a way to take this good gift from God and to apply it to life. There's a way not to. There's a right use and a wrong use of the law. And so what we won't have time to do in these four chapters is walk through every verse and explain everything that's said. There's just too much, unless y'all want to stick around till the evening service and just move on through the day. But what we can do is, and what we will do, is just walk through these four chapters, but focusing on seven right uses of the law, seven principles for how to read and understand what God is doing through the law. You're going to have six of them there in your service guide on the sermon notes page. There's a seventh that I'll give you that's actually the most important that's not there on the page, but we'll get to it in a little bit. Seven right uses of the law, seven beautiful threads that run through the law, so that as we read this, as you leave here and go read it, we know what to do. That number one, it is a framework of righteousness. The law of God reveals the essence of justice, what it means to deal honorably with our neighbor, what it means to honor the Lord and to love one another with our lives. And I say framework of righteousness because it doesn't say everything that could possibly be said about everything, but it says enough to give us a sense of what the essence of justice is, how we should treat one another, what should happen when we don't treat one another the way God has called us to treat one another. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then he, his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, she bears him sons and daughters, and this master, that is, takes care of all them, pays for all them, then the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone." And most commentators mean, believe that means shall be the masters until the years of their service are up, or until someone redeems them. 
Because in ancient Israel, there was no government-backed welfare system. There's no mortgage system. There's no employment contract system or medical insurance. And so if a member of the community was to fall upon hard times or to have some bad farming years or a physical injury or any number of things that might happen that makes them destitute, well, then what that person could do was sell themselves to an Israelite neighbor and work off a debt or work for their survival. So it's tempting for us to look back at this kind of thing and go, yeah, that's awful. We don't have anything like that. Well, do you have a mortgage? Do you have a car loan? you a professional athlete under contract? Some of the most wealthy, talented, powerful people in our country are under contracts. In other words, they're in this kind of system. And so here what God is giving is here's sort of the rules. Here's the way this is going to work to protect the vulnerable, to curtail misuse of power to help these people navigate the complexities of all these relationships. Here's how you're to love God and love one another along the way. And this is also going to set them apart from the world, a world around them where slavery is going to become a very corrupt and cruel and vicious enterprise. The Lord wants there to be justice in these relationships that these rules are there not to first protect the powerful, but the vulnerable, the weak. Verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, meaning taking her in marriage. Then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, that is in marriage, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights, her conjugal rights. And if he does not do these three things, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money, meaning that master, that husband, gets no refund. So in other words, if a husband refused to provide for the basic needs of his wife, even a wife that he first purchased as a slave, then she would be free to leave without having to pay him anything, without owing him anything. So this is, again, an example of one passage of Scripture that we might use as a church to think through why a church would encourage or help a wife married to an abusive husband to actually leave her abusive husband. Because, again, this isn't doesn't get into all the details of everything that might happen in a marriage, but what we see here is God's heart, a framework for righteousness that if a husband is not willing to care for the most basic needs of his wife's survival, then there's freedom. There's the call of the community to rescue her from that situation, to care for her in that situation. So again, we see just a framework for righteousness. Not everything that could be said about everything, but God's giving us clues here to how He thinks about these kinds of situations. Verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, meaning the children don't die or aren't injured, well, then the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So husband imposes something, the judges determine if it was right or not. 
But if there is harm, meaning something happens to these babies that come out, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So this isn't a framework for personal retaliation, but a framework for how the nation and the judges of the nation were to make decisions about justice in all the complexities when a wrong happens. How do they navigate those decisions? Jesus is actually going to quote from this passage in Matthew 5 and clarify what God means. And He's going to say, okay, you're to turn the other cheek. You've heard it was said this, but you're to turn the other cheek. What He means is God never gave you that law as personal vendetta. He didn't give you that law as personal vendetta. Oh, you took my eye, I took your eye. You, You burn me, I'll burn you. Now, what Jesus is even explaining is that was never meant to be about personal retaliation, but about justice in the nation, how the judges and the leaders were to govern and navigate these situations when someone shows up and says, yeah, me and him got in a fight. My pregnant wife stepped in, and he kicked her, and out came our kids. Now, what do you do? Because remember, Moses has been sitting from morning to night with all these people just coming before him with all their problems. Now we're getting some insight into what some of those problems were, these kinds of situations. That on a community level, different penalties are applied based on the severity of the situation. In other words, there's this beautiful logic to the law of God. It's not one size fits all. It's not one response to every problem. You have to think carefully. You have to think wisely. You actually have to go to God and His Word to apply justice in a way that maintains the dignity of all people, that holds wrongdoers responsible for the intentionality of their actions and the severity of their actions. So, it's not even about valuing or devaluing people. You can read through these passages and realize, okay, there's this amount you pay back for this, this amount for this, It's not about valuing people, but assessing damages and penalties based on the seriousness of the infraction. We see it in our court system all the time, right? There's a guilty charge. Okay, now what is the penalty to be in proportion to the wrong that's been done and the consequences? In other words, there's something beautiful about the law of God, something loving of people, something wise, something that was never meant to be rigidly imposed on everyone, but meant to guide how we think about what justice is. That's not all. It also reveals God's justice. It reveals His love of justice. It reveals His care for people, which brings us to point two, a portrait of God. The law of God begins to offer a portrait of God, revealing His nature, the splendor of His holiness, the authority of His judgments, just how much He loves people. It's like the law, in the law we get this sort of color by number where He sketches out all the lines, He puts the numbers in the spaces, and then here's the colors. And just with every little law He gives, it's another stroke on the portrait, another color. And the more of it we hear, the more of it we ingest, the more of it we dwell upon, the more of God we start to see what He's like who He is. Chapter 21, verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. 
But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So we're meant to read this and go, okay, what kind of God says these kinds of things? What can we learn about the God who delivers these kinds of words to us? We see, okay, God cares about right and wrong. He cares about the dignity of people. He cares about human life. He created all people in His own image. And so to commit murder is to assault the very nature and glory of God. So the Lord gives value to human life and values human life. Think about all the atrocities in the history of the world that have been committed when one group of people is determined to be less valuable than others. Okay, they are subhuman. They are not worthy of fill in the blank. And to consider the genocides, the atrocities, the oppressions that happen when one group is labeled less valuable. What the law of God is here to show us is that is always evil, always wicked, because God doesn't say if someone strikes another guy that's of high rank, strikes someone and kills someone who's attractive, someone who's wealthy, someone who fill in the blank. No, anybody who lies in wait and kills anybody is guilty and will die. Chapter 21, verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So if you ever wonder what the Lord thinks about North American, South American, Caribbean chattel slavery, that's all you have to read. Any version of it in the history of the world, just hear those words. It's a clear picture of here's what God thinks. Because chattel slavery isn't indentured servitude. It's not what God was talking about in previous verses. No, it's, it's kidnapping and exploitation and selling and ownership and oppression and involuntary enslavement. Anyone involved in it, God is saying here, is guilty of a capital offense, not just the owning, but the stealing and the selling and the possessing. And he says they deserve death at every point in the chain. And so we're meant to read that and go, okay, this is what God thinks because this is who God is. This is how good He is. Psalm 97, righteousness and justice are the foundations of His throne. They are the foundations of His throne. And there's something, as we'll see here in a little bit, that's meant to terrify us about that reality. There's something about an unjust and unrighteous judge that is less terrifying because He can be bought. We can get stuff by Him. We can just pull the right levers of an unrighteous judge and get out of it. There's something about a, someone who, who righteousness and justice is the foundation of His throne that is humbling and terrifying. So it means is there's no way out. You do this, you're guilty because this is who He is. Chapter 22, verse 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox, four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. 
So in these cases, the stolen or sold property was not only to be restored, but four or five times over based on what it was that was stolen and what they did with it. If a thief was caught in the act of breaking in and stealing something, they could be killed and the one who killed them would not be guilty. But if you let the sun rise, meaning you covered it up and didn't tell anybody, the community would have to assume you murdered him. So you'd be guilty. So you see, again, just this logic to the law of God, but also this picture into, okay, this is who God is. This is how righteous He is, how holy He is, how loving He is, how carefully He thinks about every single little detail of our life. Nothing we say, nothing we do, no interactions is outside the bounds of His law. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Again, we're seeing this portrait of God being filled in, that He and He alone is worthy of worship in this covenant community, and that false worship and sorcery required a different kind of response because it had a different kind of effect in the covenant community. And it said something about what they thought of God in a very unique way. In other words, there are degrees of evil, but in one way, if you've sin, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but then in another way, there, there are degrees of sin. We can progress in it, grow in it, become masters of it. Most importantly, I think we're meant to hear this law of God and just stand back and be of awe of who He is and just glory in who He is, this righteous God this holy God, this perfectly loving God. I think the people of Israel are just meant to hear these words and bow and worship because of what they show about who God is. And then what they show about us is very different, which brings us to the third point, a mirror of humanity, a mirror of humanity that the law of God also reveals our nature, exposes our hearts, reveals our loyalties. God says don't covet because we instinctively covet. The law tells you not to murder because by nature we're all murderers. Just let that soak in a minute. That There's a covetous, murderous, adulterous little thing in all of us that apart from Christ, the flesh rules. That's why we can read headlines, we can see what's happening in the news, and just push it far away as if that could never be me. Well, I tell you what, apart from Christ, apart from grace, if God just decides to hand you over to Satan, the destruction of your flesh, we are capable of anything. That's why when God comes down and sees the Tower of Babel that and, and Genesis 11 had been built, he realizes these people are capable of anything. He doesn't mean they can even defeat me or take over the world. He just means there is no evil that is outside the bounds of their creativity and what they're capable of. So we're meant to read these laws and realize, okay, this is a mirror into who I am apart from Christ. Romans 3, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I pray some of it, Lord, just give us one day of that in this world where every mouth is stopped 
and every soul held accountable to God. That's how we ought to even approach the kind of horrific news that we hear from the past week. We're not meant to look, okay, who's to blame? Let's point fingers over here, over here. No, those are those moments where the law speaks to everyone under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, no boasting before Him, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And so the law of God really does show me who I am apart from Christ and holds me accountable for it. Chapter 23, verse 10, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yields, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. So in reading words like that, we're meant to see the beauty of God and His care for the poor, and in it our tendency to be stingy and neglect the poor all at once. God actively thinks about the weak. We don't, whether we're weak or not. Even when we're weak, we're not thinking about other weak. We're thinking about this weak. And yet we see here, okay, here's the beauty of God's love for the poor and my tendency to be stingy so that God actually has to say, hey, don't mow everything. Don't just stick everything behind lock and key for you to hoard. Leave enough to share. Be generous that others can eat of what God has blessed you with. Verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, that the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So again, we read those words, we're meant to realize, okay, it's my fleshly nature to overwork for my own success and wealth, and then to overwork, overwork everybody else for my own success and wealth. That's just going to be my tendency in the flesh. I will tend away from devotion to the Lord, away from trusting Him and His provision, away from giving myself in faith to worship Him so that I just keep on chugging along and clugging along for my own advancement, for my own benefit, for my own ambitions, and forget about Him. That's why it says in the next verse, pay attention to all that I have said to you. Make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. This tells me that I will tend toward ignoring or forgetting what the Lord has said. Without His grace, we neglect His Word. Without His grace, we forget His promises. Without His grace, we're attracted to other gods. Why else would He tell me to pay attention unless I have an attention problem? Why else would He say, don't be drawn away that way, unless that's actually what's in me? We could walk through the entire law of God and use it this way, just as a mirror okay, this must be what I'm like. This must be what I need. But then fourthly, the law of God is a distinguisher of peoples. God is going to use it to set apart the covenant community of Israel. He's going to use it to distinguish them from the idolatrous, lawless nations. They're meant to be a people apart, and one of the things God's going to use to separate them is His law. Look at chapter 23, verse 14. Three times in a year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, as I've commanded you. 
shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest or of the first fruits of your labor. And what you sow in the field, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. So again, these are feasts that now God is establishing to help Israel in their worship of Him, in their remembrance of Him, in their thanksgiving to Him to distinguish them from the rest of the world who did not give honor to Yahweh, did not give glory to Yahweh for all that they had received from Him. He says, you're going to be set apart. You're going to have these dietary codes. You're going to have these feasts. You're going to have these sacrifices. You're going to have all these things that I'm going to give you that are going to distinguish you as my people. And so many of these, of course, are going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. These feasts are going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that He is the Passover Lamb. He's going to fulfill that feast. And so there's going to be some of these laws that, that again, are going to be absorbed and, and fulfilled in Christ because He's going to have another way that He's now going to distinguish His people not by external sacrifices and rules, but by the Spirit of God in us, by union to Jesus Christ, by being set apart by grace. He's now going to take what is given to just Israel, and He's going to spread it to all the nations so that no longer do nations divide, no longer do ethnic groups divide, no longer do eating practices divide, but we get a whole other feast like the Lord's Supper. We get a whole new distinction, which is union to Jesus and the filling of His Spirit. So, as we'll see in a little while, all these things are going to be pointing to the greater salvation and Savior. Verse 31, I will set your border from the Red Sea, this is chapter 23, to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Again, we're hearing these conditions of the old covenant that God is giving to Israel to set them apart from the nations. You won't let them and their practices into your land because I'm giving you this land and you taking you as my people so that you would worship me and me alone. That the law is a grace to them, a protection a kind of user manual for life with God as His covenant community. Again, He's given them a Ferrari, not a Pinto. So you don't just want to jump in and start doing whatever. You want to open the user manual and go, okay, how do I use this thing? How do I enjoy it? What's it for? They must not go after the gods of the nations. He's going to give them these external signs, these external practices to set them apart until Jesus comes. Until Jesus comes and gives them a new covenant with a new set of signs and a new mark for distinguishing them from the world. And one of those marks is going to be the mark of love, which brings us to the fifth point, a sampling of love. That the law of God reveals to us the beauty of love in action. We read this earlier before the pastoral prayer, just the words of Jesus, where the whole law, he says, is summed up in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what the law of God basically is, is, for example, love God, love people, for example. And here's 613 examples of what I mean by love God, love people. 600 pieces of case law. 
to sort of paint the picture of biblical love in action inside the covenant community of Yahweh. And if you think that's a high number, just know it isn't. In this country alone, we have 20,000 laws for owning and using guns. 20,000. Try to read the tax code in a day. It's 300, 300, or it's 3.1 million words in our tax code. If you were to ask the greatest lawyers in our country, how many laws do we have? They would say, I have no idea. There's so many. They think it's somewhere over 2 million laws that are on the books. Sometimes there'll be 40,000 new ones in one year. So I think we need to realize there's no one more loving and less legalistic than God <laughs> in all the universe. If there's anybody who knows how to make laws, it's us. And so when we hear this, okay, 613 pieces of case law, we ought to go, that's all. Because what God isn't saying is this is exhaustive, He's saying this is a sample. Here's a sample. Chapter 22, go back to that, verse 5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, someone else's that is, and lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast in his own field and in his own vineyard. So if you own this animal and it gets out and it goes eats the crops of your neighbor, God's saying you need to pay him for it. You need to restore that. You need to make that right. Well, that's just a way of God saying, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Your animal gets out, causes damage, does something, make it right. Restore it. Love your neighbor. Verse 16, chapter 22, if a man seduces a virgin who's not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he, meaning the man, shall pay the father money equal to the bride price for virgins. So this isn't a reference to sexual assault, but to seduction. This is the development of a romantic relationship and a sexual relationship that is mutual, but outside of marriage, and therefore fornication. And in ancient Israel, this would have made this girl almost unmarriable, that she's no longer a virgin, that this man has taken her. So what the law is saying, okay, you need to marry her and take care of her and love her until death do you part. You've just taken responsibility for her. Unless, of course, the father thinks he's an absolute jerk and goes, this guy ain't going to get my daughter. And then he can withhold her, and now that guy has to pay a fine to compensate for what that father is going to have to do in taking care of his daughter for all those years ahead. Which, again, all that is just a way of God saying, love each other. Love your neighbor. Don't take a girl outside marriage marry her first. If you do, take care of her after. If you're a complete jerk and everybody knows it and they withhold her from you, well, then you got to pay a fine and cover the costs and make this thing right. Or verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. You mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Which is again just going into detail, other ways of saying love people, especially the vulnerable, especially the weak. You better take care of them. You better not neglect them. You better not take advantage of them. 
because I will see it. I will hear it. I will respond with justice. Now, again, we must be struck by the fact that our Heavenly Father even needs to say these things. But then again, He knows who we are as human beings. We invent text messaging. Now, you need a law. Don't text while driving. Well, who needs that? People who don't love other people, right? We don't think about it, right? We don't think as we're texting and driving, this is not very loving until that person on a, on, a, on a bicycle crosses in front of you and you didn't see him and you hit him or you hit some little girl running out from behind a car because you were like this. Now you realize, oh, that's why that law exists. That's why God is saying these things so that I would understand and know what does it actually mean to love my neighbor. So next time you're tempted to even text and drive or do whatever else while driving, just remember, okay, what does it mean to love my neighbor? Even the neighbor I don't see right now, the neighbor I don't realize is about to come around the corner on a bicycle, the stuff I don't see that God sees, which is why he says, love, set your heart to love. And it's in the law that we see just how not loving we are, which brings us to the sixth point, a diagnostic of sin. Distinguishing right from wrong. It's one thing the law of God helps us to do good from evil, removing all claims to self-righteousness. That's why Paul's going to say in 1 Timothy 1, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. I love how Paul just opens the bucket up to whatever else we could throw in there that's contrary to the nature of who God is. That those who love God and others don't really need this law. Isn't that interesting to think about? And in fact, part of the new covenant, God says in Jeremiah 33, 31, I promise that a new covenant's coming that I'm going to make where I'm going to write my law on their hearts. In other words, I'm going to fill them with my spirit. I'm going to unite them to my son. They're going to know in their heart what it really means to love me and to love others. But until that moment, we really need the rules. We really need to know right from wrong because we are, we are sneaky. We have ways of getting around stuff. Ways of saying to God, oh, I didn't know you meant that. We are masters at finding loopholes. Go back to Exodus 21, verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Exodus 21, 17 expresses a similar idea. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. And so those are not laws that are given to children who respect their parents or love their parents, but to those who hate them, to those who want to kill them. As, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, for the ungodly sinners, for unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers. That it's laid down to make sin truly sinful. Go back to chapter 23, verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. 
You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So the law of God is just really clear about calling sin, sin. If you're partial to a rich man or partial to a poor man in some legal matter where you bear false witness or you join with a whole group to bear false witness, it's sin. There's just no excuse for it. We don't get to say, well, you know, he's rich. I mean, he can deal with it. Or, you know, he's poor. He's not going to be able to do anything about it. Whatever other excuse may we use to to justify false witness, to justify false testimony. We may say, well, my statement about the other person wasn't wrong. It just left out a lot of key details. This is so important in a day and age that is rife with slander and gossip. Gossip's so common, we don't even realize it's all gossip. It's so slanderous, we don't realize how slanderous it is and how many of us participate or hear and enjoy it. What the law of God is trying to help us see is it's just wicked. It's just sin. It's just wrong. It just cuts through all the excuses. Chapter 23, verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. In other words, to be apathetic to the hardships of others, even those who hate us, is sin. It's ungodly. To harden our hearts in a moment when we really can help transgresses the very law of God. That's why when you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, where this man is beaten and robbed and left for dead on the road, and then a priest walks by and a Levite walks by, and seeing the man, remember, they cross over to the other side and go right past him. We read it and we know that's wrong. But you know, the priests and Levites, they would have had excuses. You know, I just went through purification. I'm on my way to do my serving. I'm on my way to do this, the Lord's work. It would really be wrong or sinful for me to get my hands unclean by touching this body. But we're meant to look at it and we go, no, that's just hardness of heart. That's apathy for the hardship of another. That's seeing somebody under their burden and refusing to do anything, even though we're in a position to do it. Romans 7, 7, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul's just saying, you know, the the law awakened sin in him and really showed him what it was, sin. And that's part of the mercy of the law and the kindness of God giving the law is it's like an x-ray machine that just shows us what's inside. It's this diagnostic that shows us the sickness and doesn't let us make excuses and get out of it. Because the only thing worse than having cancer is having it and not knowing it. Or even worse than that, having it, knowing it, and then refusing to acknowledge it. And God gives us the law so that we wouldn't fall to that kind of death, to the purposeful ignorance death. 
So the Lord is not giving His law to His people so that they would see how much better they are than everyone else, which is how the Pharisees will eventually use it, right? Thank you, Lord, for giving me this great law by which I can measure myself better than others. Now, when Jesus listed some of the commandments to the rich young ruler in Luke 18, implying that in order to inherit salvation by works, you have to keep the whole law perfectly without going astray in a single thing. And the rich young ruler replied, all these I have kept from my youth. That's his response. Okay, how many? Yeah, okay, great, great, great. I'm cool. Thanks, Jesus. Just needed to confirm it. All it did is betray the fact that he did not understand the law of God, nor himself. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, Romans 3, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what the law brings, knowledge of sin. I knew something was wrong. I didn't know exactly what it was, but now that I read the law of God, I see it. Remember when they brought the book of the law to Josiah after he had been lost for so many decades in the temple? They brought it to Josiah the king, and they read it to him. You remember what he did? He tore his clothes and said, great is the wrath of God upon us because we have done all this. As soon as he heard the law, he knew we've violated it. We have not kept it. That's why as we read these chapters, that's part of the effect it's meant to have as a diagnostic of sin. We're meant to have a new knowledge of sinfulness. But then praise God, He doesn't leave us there. Which leads to our final point, and that is it is a servant of salvation. It is a servant, this is point seven, a servant of salvation. Revealing our need for salvation. Holding us in custody until a Savior can come. Holding us in custody until that Savior can come and satisfy the law in our place and redeem us from its penalty. That when we look back on the old covenant of Mosaic law through the new covenant of grace in Jesus Christ, we should see this most clearly. I think that it's this feature that should stand out to us most strongly, that it alerts us to our need for a Savior. And once we have the Savior, it just leaves us spinning around with thanksgiving and gratitude till the day we die. That's the effect. And we see hints of this in chapter 23 and chapter 24 here. Chapter 23, verse 20 says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So the angel sent before the people is the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, a pre-incarnate, meaning before His incarnation appearing of Jesus Christ. He's the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. He's the one going before them that the Father is saying, you listen to Him. Don't rebel against Him. Why not? Because He's God. Pay attention to what He says very carefully into His voice. Why? Because He's God. He will not pardon your transgressions. Well, that's God language. Only God can pardon or not pardon. Chapter 24, verse 1, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, 
you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, meaning only the mediator is going to get that close. But the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. In other words, there's real danger to you approaching on your own. Real danger with you going around the mediator, going around the means that I supplied for you to approach me. So we hear even as we read all these hints and pieces of evidence about, okay, I'm not supposed to just come straight to him. I can't keep this law on my own. There's someone else that has to be in the middle for me. So Moses is going to write down God's words. He's going to build an, off, an altar. He's going to oversee burnt offerings and sacrifices in verses 4 and 5. And then in verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And he said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood of these sacrifices and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. That would have been, I would think, a little shocking. Great, thanks, great law, we'll keep it, wonderful. And then Moses throws blood on you. What's that? Well, that's the cost of not keeping the covenant. That's, it's being sealed in blood. There's a picture that violating it costs blood. Costs blood to enact it, and it will cost blood if you break it. We're thinking about how long are they going to go before they're going to break it. And that blood that they're now dripping in is now a very painful reminder of what's coming. The old covenant was sealed with blood. And because for any who transgressed the law, it would cost their blood. Verse 9, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, went up and they saw the God of Israel. They're going to see His feet. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What an interesting comment. He's going to bring them near. You're going to see his feet. You're going to see the ground. And then Scripture's clear to say, and he didn't kill them. Which is the way the Bible is saying, which is what they deserved. Which is what would have been the proper due. He's saying, but God's going to have grace. He's going to overlook. He's going to hold over and eat and drink with them with something else in view. They saw his feet and he spares their lives, which should sound a kind of alarm in all of us. But it should also comfort us. Okay, there's some hope. There's a way to be in the presence of God and live. Verse 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud, went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. But we hear these words, and I think we're meant to realize that we have no business walking up to the mountain and walking up the mountain on our own merit. It's one big takeaway. We have no place boasting that we've somehow kept the law from our youth before God. The smoke, the cloud, the thunder, the blood, animal carcasses, the feet of God, devouring fire, 
The fact that only Moses, the mediator, is going to approach, all those things should alert us to not a need to perfect ourselves, but a need for a Savior. I need someone who's going to change who I am, someone who's going to take my violations against this law and pay for it with blood, someone who's going to keep that law perfectly in my place and somehow his law-keeping be credited to me. So all these passages verses are all looking forward and waiting. Who's going to do that? Who's going to accomplish this? It's not going to be Moses. He's going to die and be buried somewhere and not be raised on the third day. And this is where the gospel says, I know, the gospel says Jesus. And because of sin, we were never able to keep the law. And God never intended to use the law to make us righteous before Him. Listen to how Paul explains it in Galatians 3. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture, I mean this Word of God He's given us, imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That the effect the law of God was meant to have on all of Israel is a longing for that day, a longing for the day when God would send His Son to become a man in Jesus Christ, when that man, Jesus Christ, would live and keep the law perfectly as He did. He would love God perfectly. He would love His neighbor perfectly but then He would go to the cross and there die to pay the penalty for every violation of the law of His people, that His blood would actually be shed to not just satisfy the wrath of God for all the injustice against the old covenant, but create a whole new covenant, a covenant that's not sealed through the blood of goats, but through His own blood not through walking up the law and keep, walking up to the mountain and keeping all this law by ourselves, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that now when we read the law, we're meant to feel the weight. We're meant to see, okay, that is a prison. That is a guardian. That is this beautiful framework of righteousness, this beautiful portrait of God, this ugly mirror of myself, this terrible diagnostic of sin, but it's driving me to the Savior. It doesn't leave me there to die at the mountain, but leads me to a whole other mountain, a mountain where Christ hangs upon a cross and pays for it all. And we know that the Father's wrath is satisfied because on the third day, He's going to be raised as a statement of His law is kept in our place, as a statement that the Father is pleased, this is my beloved Son, so that all who are united to Him in faith have the law kept in their place, so that now by faith we can stand before God and Him declare us, you're righteous. 
Oh, because I've kept all the law? No, but because He did. And you're in Him. Your life is hidden with me in Christ. All His righteousness credited to you. All your unrighteousness put on Him and borne away with His death so that now you can be adopted as my child, filled with my Spirit, and have a whole new understanding of what the law means so that you can actually use it lawfully, not as a ladder to heaven, but as a framework for what it means to sort of love one another by the Spirit's power, as this beautiful portrait of God that helps us worship Him in spirit and truth, as this thing that keeps driving us back to Jesus, thankful for Him, worshiping Him, never wanting to leave Him, because He is the answer. Children of God, for the glory of God, filled with the Spirit of God, until He comes and makes His will be done on earth. Let's go to the Lord now and pray. Father, we have heard Your Word, Your law, and we see in it Your justice. We see in it Your beauty. We see in it our own depravity and sinfulness. We see in it just this sampling of love, and we are driven by it to the foot of Jesus Christ. We look to Him as our Savior. We receive His righteousness as our righteousness, and we praise You for Him. We praise You that You provided a lamb in our place. We praise You that You provided a way of salvation, not through the keeping of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer, our prayer, that there's anybody here who is just living under the weight of the law, under that condemnation, that You would even now drive them to Jesus. Show them their only hope, their only life, their only salvation is through faith in Him, repentance and trust in Christ. Make us, Father, a thankful people. Make us joyful in this new life that you've given us. Make us sobered by your law. And yet let that law make us always thankful for Christ, always the more eager to love one another because how he has loved us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.